0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: The House of Elliot Smith, Part 3. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town.
2: Thank you all for taking this journey through the life of Elliot Smith with us. We've gone through Smith's background in episode 1 and in episode 2 toured his last home in Echo Park, California. We've gotten a lot of really great feedback and we really appreciate it. As you know, this is a sensitive subject and we're doing our best to explore it in a way that is both thought-provoking and respectful. On this episode, we're diving into maybe some of the more controversial thoughts surrounding Elliot Smith. So please listen along to The House of Elliot Smith, Part 3, Smith's Death and Legacy. I also want to make a very quick correction to Episode 1. Smith did not give up drinking on his birthday. It was actually weeks later. He was in a sober lifestyle when he performed at Red Fest in Salt Lake City. I want to give an update on what happened on the 21st at the Elliot Smith house, as promised. And the update is not much. The 21st was the 19th anniversary of Elliot Smith's death. And we were planning on stopping by to see if anyone came to the house to pay their respects. Ren, the current tenant we talked to in episode two, was under the weather, so we ended up not going over there. But she told us she didn't receive any gifts or items at her front door, as she had in past years. Of course, leaving random gifts at a private residence is creepy, but it also made me, quite honestly, a little sad. Is Smith's memory waning from the public consciousness, his fan base losing passion as more years come between the time he actively made music and the present? But the answer, as I did more research for this specific episode, is a resounding no. People are still writing music think pieces about Smith. His biggest fan board, Sweet Adeline, has over 6,000 active members, and even the feedback we've gotten from this little series. We know from all of this that Smith's legacy is vibrant and alive. It really hasn't changed much, at least as far as I can see, since his death. This enduring and passionate fan base is what makes the great musicians great, and Smith, of course, is. I reached out to lots of people for this episode, and many got back to me, but declined an in interview. Most of them said the same thing. Everything they've ever needed to say or could be said already live in other interviews, online or in publication. And I agreed, what else is left to say about the death of Elliot Smith that hasn't been said a million times before? The answer, honestly, is, uh, not much. But after the many TV shows I've worked on and four years of doing this podcast, I do know that talking about past events and people can often empower others to speak up and share their memories and perspectives. And I'm all about that. Let's review what we know for sure. Elliot Smith was born on August 6th, 1969, and died at age 34 on October 21st, 2003. The 34-year-old died from two stab wounds to the chest on his way to the nearest hospital. At the time, he lived with his girlfriend, Jennifer Chiba. The coroner's report, which we'll share on social media and in the notes of this episode, reported that at the time of his death, no traces of illegal substances or alcohol were found in his system— but prescribed levels of antidepressants, ADHD medications, and anti-anxiety medications were present in his system. Jennifer Chiba called 911 and Smith dies on the way to the hospital. The autopsy was ruled inconclusive, or in the report's own language, quote, the mode of death is undetermined at this time. More specifically in her report, Deputy Medical Examiner Lisa Scheinen concluded, quote, While his history of depression is compatible with suicide and the location and direction of the stab wounds are consistent with self-infliction, several aspects of the circumstances, as are known at the time, are atypical of suicide and raise the possibility of homicide, including stabbing through clothing, the presence of incisive wounds—hope I'm saying that right—possible defense wounds on one arm and one hand, and an unusual, quote, absence of hesitation wounds around the fatal injury— The report added, the girlfriend's reported removal of the knife and subsequent refusal to speak with detectives are all of concern. You can check out the autopsy report yourself in the episode notes. As of today, Los Angeles Police Department's investigation of Smith's death remains open. That is what we, as the general public, pretty indisputably know. Where things diverge is when we call into consideration secondhand accounts of the people involved, the circumstances surrounding his death, and of course, a deep dive into Smith's own complicated history. From my research, the widely known beliefs and details surrounding Smith's death are based around the experience of Jennifer Chiba, Smith's live-in girlfriend. I don't think it's going out on a limb to say that Chiba and Smith had a tumultuous relationship. Chiba was also no stranger to Smith's references and thoughts on suicide. Bear in mind, this is a guy who threatened suicide to get out of his DreamWorks record deal, and it's been said that Jeff Magnum of Neutral Milk Hotel had dreams that Elliot was going to kill himself months before it happened, and was so distraught over it that he warned all of his friends about it. So, there's that. On October 21st, according to Chiba, the two fought, she ignored him, and locked herself in the bathroom. She then heard a scream, and when she opened the door, she sees her boyfriend standing in front of her with a knife in his chest. Chiba pulls the knife out, and Smith collapses. Then, Chiba calls 911, and Smith dies, headed to the hospital. His time of death is listed at 1.36 p.m. I can't begin to understand the pain and trauma Chiba endured through all of this, and still does. And I am so, so sorry that her life and legacy is so staunchly wrapped up in this, which, of course, it is. Her talking, or not talking to law enforcement, press, or fans about the case, continues to be her exercising her privacy, but also feeds into some of the theories around Smith's death. Theories that use the elements in the coroner's report to push a homicide versus a suicide. Now I want to introduce Liam Gowing, writer of an extensive spin article on the death of Elliot Smith entitled Mr. Misery. Gowing knew Smith personally, and is a singer-songwriter himself. His article also has one of the rare interviews with Jennifer Chiba, which proved very helpful as her insight is scarce, and like I said, interviews from her are few and far between. We'll talk more about Gowing at the end of this episode, and there'll be info on him and his music in the episode notes. Of course, this is a large oversimplification of Gowing's writing on the subject, but essentially Gowing's article talks to lots of his and Smith's friends, doctors and law enforcement, pointing to the crossroads of Smith's psychological trauma, addiction, and interpersonal identity—essentially, him not wanting help—as the reasons for his suicide. And yes, he does think it was a suicide. He says Smith shows many of the clinical signs and criterion of suicidality—a deep inner pain, psychological disorders that go untreated, difficulties with relationships, social attachments, and isolation— These symptoms are supported by psychologist Dr. Alan Lanny Berman, who was the executive director of the American Association of Suicidology and interviewed by Gowing for the piece. And in terms of the weird things from the autopsy, Gowing said Smith wouldn't be caught dead with his shirt off, for one. As for the possible defensive wounds, according to a close friend named Robin Perringer, Smith was a cutter, someone who cuts their bodies to cope with emotional pain, intense anger, or frustration, which might account for those wounds. Jennifer Chiba herself says in the piece, quote, The problem is that it makes people think, well, if he was clean, how the hell could he have done that to himself? But anyone who understands drug abuse knows that you use drugs to hide from your past or sedate yourself from strong, overwhelming feelings. So when you're newly clean and coming off of the medications that have been masking all of those feelings, that's when you're most vulnerable. So, Jason, I want to ask you, suicide, it makes sense, right?
1: If I take everything into consideration, it seems to be the most reasonable and logical for what it's Mm -hmm. worth. And that might be easy for me to say, but all I can do is take all the information in and then also how I feel. A lot of it is how I feel. is just how I feel. Truly. Although that doesn't mean that there's not other variables or pieces of information that we don't know. Yeah. I feel like there's unanswered questions possibly, just Mm -hmm. because I feel this way doesn't mean every question has been answered. Every piece of information we want is available to us. Mm -hmm. I also don't think that it's an absolute answer necessarily, Mm -hmm. but it's the closest one that I can come to.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think we've ingested so much information on this case, and there's so much to consider. And there are things that don't make sense. And Delving into that for this episode certainly opens up a whole other world, really. And it's it's hard to reconcile. It's very hard to digest it. I still am, honestly. But I want to introduce someone who does not agree that it was a suicide. Her name is Alison Camus. A teacher and a huge fan of Smith's, she wrote a book on Smith's death called A Question Mark, An Investigation into the Mysterious Death of Elliot Smith. She believes Elliot Smith's death to be a homicide. But before we get into that, let's take a break.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that
3: Because if you read the autopsy report, you can read the cause of death is exsanguination, which means that he he lost all his blood. So she removed the knife and probably waited some time, and he had no more blood left, or very little. I mean, I read some studies about people who stab themselves, and usually they can be saved, especially if somebody is there, because... Usually when you stab yourself, you're not going to stab yourself very, very deeply because it's so hard to do. And if somebody is there, you can be saved.
2: Camus, who has done extensive research, but like myself, came across some serious red tape while trying to interview friends and family, believes that Smith was killed by Chiba. She thinks suicide just doesn't add up, that Chiba had anger issues, that the two were always fighting. She also talks about how, the day of Smith's death, She feels that there are some inconsistencies, especially with the timeline. Also, that Chiba was having cell phone issues to contribute to this inconsistency in the timeline and couldn't call 911 right away, or maybe wouldn't call 911 right away.
3: She said to a member of uh, Elliot's family that uh, there was a delay in the ambulance uh, because her cell phone was not working. This is what she said. That's very bizarre. Because if somebody is bleeding to death, I mean, you go to the neighbor, I mean, you find a phone. I mean, you are not going to wait because your cell phone is not working. So it's, it's, I don't know why, why she said that. And to me, it seems very strange. And the neighbor I talked to also said that, um, that's kind of strange, but he said that he heard a screaming, he heard the screaming. And then there was a long silence and he, he said, it's weird because. Suddenly it stopped, so maybe the stabbing occurred at that time. It's a possibility. And he left to have lunch. It was in the middle of the day. And when he came back, the ambulance was there. And he said, well, but I left for hours.
2: She also says that there was no hesitation wounds on the body, self-harm that is typically found on a victim of suicide by self-infliction. And the stab wounds themselves...
3: I mean, the stabbing through the clothes, the hesitation marks are absent. They usually uh, are there when people stab themselves. And actually, stabbing yourself in the chest, it's rare. It's very rare. Most of them are not done in the chest because it's really hard because you have bones. And going through the bones uh, requires a lot of strength and and, and determination. And (laughs) it's, it's extremely rare. So he had sternum injuries also, which are suspicious. And it, I mean, uh, the the second stabbing was very deep, seven inch deep. So it's really, I mean, you have to be very determined to die to do that.
2: Wren, the current resident, we interviewed her last episode, believes Smith's death to be a suicide, but also agrees with Camus and takes issue with Chiba pulling out the knife at the moment where medically she shouldn't have. And so my doubt comes in because I was CPR first aid certified and you leave it in there because you take it out they're gonna bleed out. I was taught that I it's in there but and she was too so that was the doubt but in that moment she saw him in pain, and I feel like she was trying to relieve that pain, remove the pain. Another big point of contention with Camus and others is Smith's alleged suicide note. Allegedly, Jennifer Chiba found a note on a post-it that read, quote, I'm so sorry, love, Elliot. God forgive me.
3: I mean, it could have been his writing or not his writing. I mean, I don't know. In one book... They say, uh, I mean, Jennifer Chiba, his girlfriend, said that uh, they were in a habit to write notes like that because they were fighting all the time. I have to say that too. They were fighting all the time. And so she said, oh, we were writing notes to each other all the time. So it could have been written anytime. time. She's the one who told the police, oh, this is a suicide note. Well, okay, maybe... Camus said
2: Chiba was in the habit of sticking post-its around the house, each with encouraging messages. And that felt Smith writing a suicide note on one when he wasn't the big fan of post-its in the household seems pretty suspicious to her. Also, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you can find the full interview with Camus, which covers quite a bit more about all of this. It is on our Patreon, and there's a link in our episode notes. We should have that ready to go this weekend. Okay, so what? do you have any thoughts on the suicide note on the legitimacy
1: of it. She makes a lot of really compelling, I don't know if they're arguments, but she Mm -hmm. brings up a lot of compelling points. I found the information she presented to be very interesting. And it does make you think, again, is it pertinent? If it wasn't a suicide note, does it mean it's not suicide? Or is it just Mm -hmm. another piece of information that is... Pertinent or not pertinent?
2: Yeah, it's not helpful to me either way, to be honest. It's just another confusing piece to me that kind of has me ruminating over all of this probably more than I should. It's almost like the less information, the better sometimes, where it's like we're throwing in these these things that like don't quite add up when, again, it would be much more cut and dry with the omission of some of these question marks.
1: Regardless, an interesting piece of information.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Camus isn't alone in thinking Chiba had something to do with Smith's death. A woman named Caroline, who was the neighbor next to Smith's recording studio, New Monkey Studio, was also suspicious of Chiba, whom she calls The Force, in her testimony she wrote days after Smith's death. She says, quote, The second night after Elliot's death, at about 12 a.m. in the morning, The Force came, in a Jeep, with two guys. I sat in the car with my partner, directly facing their car, and finally the force came out and put many boxes into the car with the help of the guys. I felt like protecting Elliot. What if it's his music or writings? What if it's something that people need to see? We stared at them as they filled the back of the car. I wanted them to know that I was watching. I wanted to scream, you did it. You killed them. I knew you were a dark force, and I wasn't afraid of the force anymore, but I didn't say anything because I really didn't know what the truth was, as I don't know today. Again... Those words, intense, intense. And of course, Chiba is no fool. From day one, she knew that she was a suspect in the eyes of the public for what went down that day. During that time, she told a reporter, quote, in my mind, there's no question to what happened. I want people to know that I'm not keeping quiet because I have anything to hide. If I was a suspect, I would have heard from the investigators for one thing. Another is that his sister and his parents and everyone else close to him knows the truth. So I'm not worried about it. At the very least, Chiba and Smith's relationship lends another dimension to the last days of Smith's life. Sean Organ, the owner of Org Records, the British label that planned to release Smith's last single, darkly compares Chiba and Smith's volatile relationship to that of Sid Vicious and Nancy Spongeon. Organ says, quote, "...people describe them as a Sid and Nancy couple, constantly arguing, splitting up, and getting back together again. I can't really comment on it because I'm in London, they were over there in LA, and I've never met them." The stories that were coming back were, yes, that it was a crazed, druggy Sid and Nancy situation. Again, pretty fucking harsh words spoken from a source that was far away and did not know the couple, where they were at. Clearly, drug use at that point in time is is up for question. It's something to put in there kind of as a comparison as someone outside of their circle, but still in the music industry, commenting on what they heard. But that's not the only comparison being made in the death and legacy of Elliot Smith. After Smith's death, a lot of people compared him to Kurt Cobain, including iconic songwriter Mary Lou Lord. She told Press that, had things gone a little differently, Cobain and Smith would have really connected. She says, I often talk about Kurt Cobain and Elliot Smith in the same timelines and in the same paragraphs because I knew them both. When you're talking about the loss, if you look at the timeline and you look at where both of them were geographically, they were only like two hours away from each other. And if fucking Kurt had just stuck around for a few more months which was when Elliot had started to record, I know for a fucking fact that he would have adored Elliot. He would have gone to one of his shows, or they would have met somehow. They were both people who loved music so much, and they were both so incredibly similar, I think that the music they could have created as a team would have kept them alive. Music, to both of them, was the most important thing. It's such a fucking loss, because I know Kurt had an album like Either Or in him, and Elliot could have helped him see it through. Those words, by Lord, are so, so sad to me. Of course, there are other conspiracies surrounding Smith's death, outlandish ones that aren't as widely discussed or substantiated, like that Smith had a hit out on him or that he's still alive, but we'll never really know what happened in that apartment in Echo Park. I personally like what R.J. Smith writes in his piece Elliot Smith's Uneasy Afterlife for the New Yorker. He says, Poetically, at least, the case sits about perfectly right where it is now. The ambiguity, the lack of resolution among equally sad possibilities— our material right out of one of Smith's songs. As we round this out, do you have any thoughts or conclusions about Elliot Smith's legacy?
1: Just in what we've been doing and who we've been talking to, and then online, just looking at the conversation about him and his music, it's really inspiring. I love when people love things, Mm -hmm. especially music. So it's actually had somewhat of a, a positive impact on me And just seeing people talk so enthusiastically about an artist and in this case, Elliot Smith and being in this environment where he really made a mark. Mm -hmm. And you know how, how much I love and we love Los Angeles. Yeah. It's been a really interesting positive experience for me despite how tragic it is
2: yeah absolutely and it's it's hard to tell someone's story and get it right and i don't think we did i mean obviously it's you know a human life i don't think you can get it right but i think it's it's really it's interesting to think about and talk about and round out and i hope that we did some right by the fans by friends by people who still love him and think about him myself included It's really, really hard to parse Smith's musical legacy from his life, and of course, his death. But I want to wrap this episode up with something beautiful Gowing wrote to me while we were corresponding over email. What we lost in him when he died was and remains a tragedy. But then again, he gave us so much while he was here, more than it's right to expect from a single person. And for that, I'm grateful. I'm especially honored to have gotten to know him a little bit. At his last birthday, I gave him a present. This teeny tiny wind-up piano that would twinkle out the opening notes to Hey Jude when you cranked the tiny arm. He had such a grin on his face when he put it up to his ear and realized what the tune was. I'll cherish that memory forever. For each of these episodes, Ghost Town has donated in Smith's name to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. You can donate or get involved or find support and resources at NAMI.org. Liam Gowing's DIY double album Motherload will be released on November 15th, and music from his album is sampled in this episode. You can find him and info on his music in the episode's notes. Allison Camu is a teacher and an author of A Question Mark, and Investigation into the Mysterious Death of Elliot Smith, published by Genius Book Publishing out of Los Angeles. Her book can be found on Amazon or wherever you buy books. We want to thank Liam and, of course, Allison Camu, our producer Brian Fernandez, Ren Maddox, and everyone we corresponded with for this piece. Links and bios can be found in the episode's notes.